So if we went up and down the aisle today with a microphone, would you add something to it? Would there be one in your life? In all my years of ministry experience, believe it or not, I've found that everybody has at least one. Now, it takes a lot of experience to be able to come to a conclusion like that. How many of you have at least one worry or some little bit of pressure in your life? How many of you are sitting beside the one <laughs> that worries you the most or brings the most pressure into your life? Don't raise your hand for that one. We've all got one. Every single one of us have one. Probably more now in 2020 than we've had in a long time. Sometimes I feel like I've got a handle on them. Sometimes I feel like they have a handle on me. Most of the ones that have a handle on me are the ones that are self-imposed. Pastors usually preach from a number of vantage points. For many of them, it's what they have learned or are learning. Many times they invite you on a journey, and they want you to come along that journey with them. And sometimes it's current issues. This message the next Sunday morning comes out of all of that. We all face pressure, family situations, job situations, sleepless nights, tension of one kind or the other. Some say in your sermon notes, if you didn't get them, they're on the back table back there, that somewhere between 70 and 90% of all the illnesses of life are caused by the pressures of modern life. Did you know, though, that almost half of our worries never happen? Almost half the things we're worried about never really happen. One-third of them concern old decisions that can't be changed no matter how many times or how long we worry. One-tenth of them center in criticism, mostly untrue, made by people who feel inferior. And one-tenth relates to health, which, by the way, is worse when you worry. I mean, even Jesus said you can't add a day to your life by worrying. But if we're really honest, we can probably subtract a lot from our life by worrying. Which basically, when you look at the statistics, most of the things in your notes that we worry about are things over which we have no control at all. But sadly, we still worry. Work-related, self-imposed, relational, and many times the demands of life. And then you look at this year, and it takes everything and puts it on steroids, right? Now, I have made a personal decision, just me. I have made a personal decision that I am not going to talk about everything we've been through in 2020 every single Sunday. That's me. Thank you. But we are today. Because you can't ignore it. You can't avoid it. I know churches that switched gears and went to discussions about it every single week. And I get that. I understand that. But I made a personal decision that every week we're not going to talk about it. I remember Dave saying as we began this journey early in March and April, he said, please, no more songs on the storm of life. I'm running out. <laughs> but we really can't avoid it forever. It's in front of us all the time. As a matter of fact, I had this habit for years where on Monday on my day off, or sometimes Saturday when I didn't have anything to do, I'd go out in the front porch with a cup of coffee, and by the second cup of coffee, I was awake, and I would get a, a, an, my iPad out, and I would look at the news. It's been ruined this year. <laughs> I don't want to do it. I don't want to look at it. I can tell you tonight, when you turn on the news tonight, I can tell you exactly right now the five things they're going to talk about. 
It was the same as last night and the night before and the night before and the night before and we'll be that way for quite a while to come. I think it was Rachel who sent me a screenshot of something that she got a while ago. It's when those two astronauts got in the shuttle of some kind and flew off and to the sky and somebody in the bottom of that said, what a great way and what a great time to get out of this world in 2020. But one of the responsibilities of a leader is to talk about current reality. And this is current reality. A couple of weeks ago, when I was putting this all together, I began to write down some of the things that we all faced in 2020, and all of a sudden I realized my page was full. And I'd already made a decision not to talk about it every week, but you can't ignore some of the things that go on day after day after day. COVID-19, which changed everything for everybody. People dying, shutdowns unemployment. We were told to close businesses and then everyone was surprised when unemployment went up. Riots, sicknesses, churches closing, events canceled, weddings postponed, funerals with no way of saying goodbye. Those two essence of life, that wedding that you've planned for for a long period of time that everybody couldn't wait to get to now has been delayed, postponed, or not even happening is the way they planned it. And this highlight of your life that you look forward to for such a long period of time changed pretty dramatically, especially with who was allowed to come and who was able to come. And then funerals, that time of your life when you want to be around the person that you spent a lot of your life with and you want to be able to say adequately goodbye, how much they've meant to you, how much you love them, how excited they are about seeing Jesus and excited you are that they are or how worried you are that you don't know if they know Jesus. And many times, many people have been robbed by that moment. Our school is going to start this fall, and if they do start this fall, what is it going to look like? And am I prepared to homeschool? My oldest daughter has a special needs child and a nine-year-old that has more adrenaline than I do on coffee. I mean, if you can just picture that. And all of a sudden now she's homeschooling, so you have a special needs child that needs a lot of attention and a nine-year-old who really needs a lot of attention, and you're not prepared to homeschool, and now you're doing that. And then the continually changing guidelines and recommendations, and then the never-ending political debate. Now, I know all of this is going to go away after the election. I've heard that one before. According to CDC, 40% of American adults have reported struggling with mental health during this time frame. One-third feelings of anxiety and depression. One-quarter say they're really wrestling and struggling with traumatic events of some kind or the other. When we talked about whether or not we were going to open, when we talked about and prayed about when we are going to shut down, we realized that was the thing to do at that particular period of time. As we began to wrestle with it and think through it and pray through it, I began to realize and think about the fact that in the middle of all of this uncertainty and all of the issues of life that were all facing collectively, there's something important about being able to share it collectively that we weren't able to do. After 9-11, church attendance soared. In the middle of all of the uncertainty as to whether or not another attack would take place and is this only the beginning of something else, people flooded at churches. But in the middle of what we've dealt with over the last number of weeks, churches were shut down. Now, I get it. I know the church is not a building. If I had one more person send me a note to say the church has left the building. 
Church leads the building every Sunday. The church is not the building, it's the people of God. But there is something about being able to be together in the middle of all the uncertainties of life and the unpredictability of life to be able to sing and celebrate and see one another's face and share those moments. We are so thrilled that we'll be able to continue to do this online. And many are joining us this morning online. We're thrilled that we're able to do that. But for those that are able to come back, there is something about being collectively together. And so as we prayed through that, I knew there were churches that had to stay shut down based on what was going on in their community, and many of them still are. But I am so thrilled beyond measure in the fact in the middle of our community in our area, we were able to stay open and see one another again and be able to share this time together. We face an enormous amount of uncertainty and an incredible amount of pressure in a 2020 like many of us haven't seen before. Now, I know you know this, but Jesus knows it all as well. It's not like God's in heaven saying, oh, my goodness, what happened? Hey, Gabriel, turn that calendar over to 21. Man, we got to get through 2020. He knows everything about it. What's fascinating about this particular section of Scripture is that Jesus, more than anybody on this planet, faced an enormous amount of pressure. And no matter what you and I go through, or what you and I have gone through, or what you and I are about to go through, he experienced it all. And he's the model that I want to talk about today, next Sunday morning. You follow on through the pages of Scripture, and it's easy to see. Max Licato, one of my favorite authors in The Eye of the Storm, shares some significant insights about what it was like for Jesus to go through these last two years, one year, few months, and few days of his ministry life on this planet. More pressure than anyone would ever see. If you only read it just to read it or say I had my devotions, you miss the essence and wonder of what it is that Jesus is saying and what it is that he experienced and more importantly, what he wants to teach us as he walks through all of that. Just go to John 17, go to John 13, 15, 14 and you'll see that in just those few chapters some incredible things that Jesus wants to teach us. And John, more than any of the other gospel writers, really gives us the essence and the feelings and the emotions of what Jesus is going through. I love reading John's vantage point of it all. Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about the upper room experience and communion with the disciples, and they record it, and Paul later in 1 Corinthians reiterates what I heard, what I know went on in that upper room. John talks about other aspects of that. John, if you know anything about John, was what he considered to be Jesus' favorite. I'm the one that Jesus loved the most. Your kids still ask that question. Who's the favorite? Am I the favorite? My girls got me cups, coffee cups, for Father's Day that said, isn't it great to have a child like me, your favorite? Each of them got similar cups that said the exact same thing. Did not know it until they each gave them out. <laughs> and we're still wondering that. And John says, I am. I'm his favorite. And what I love about John is he writes way more than just the details of what went on in the last few hours of Jesus' life. But some of the emotion and a lot of his teaching. These chapters are filled with some pressure-packed moments, and if you only read them to read them's sake, or if you only read them to say you've read it for your devotions, you miss the essence of what Jesus is going through. I mean, these are the last few days before he goes to the cross. It is one thing to know you're going to die. It's another thing to know how. I don't want to surprise any of you in here. 
but we're all going to die. I know that may be a shock to some of you, but we're all going to die. I'm going to die. Unless Jesus comes back, we're all going to die. What I wonder about, to be really honest with you, is the how. Did somebody back there say no? (laughs) What I've always wondered and worried about just a little bit is the how. I know I'm going to die. I'm a little bit nervous about the how. When you look at a section of Scripture like this, Jesus not only knows he's going to die, he knows how. And when you clearly understand the how, you're blown away by what he does in this upper room experience in John. He's going to talk to them about every aspect of their life. More pressure than you can imagine. More moments in his life that no one has ever felt up to that particular point. But an incredible amount of intimacy and tenderness that go with that. In John chapter 13, as he begins this story, it said it was right before the Passover meal. Jesus knew his hour was about to come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. So, verse 4, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and then poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. I mean, knowing his hour had come, that's a key phrase in light of what he just did. Knowing his hour had come, knowing what he knew was about to happen, would you have thought about them and then not only thought about them, but washed their feet? I mean, these guys were just arguing about who's the greatest. Who was his favorite? Do we have a special place in the kingdom? And now here, the Son of God, in the middle of all of that, knowing what these next few hours and days are going to hold in his life, washes their feet. I don't know if any of you ever grew up in a church setting or have been in those situations in some churches where they've actually demonstrated that. It's one of the most humbling things you can ever imagine. Whether you're the one washing or you're the one having your feet washed, it is one of the most humbling experiences on earth. And here in all of that, in the essence of what he was about to face, he washes their feet. There's no way I would have thought to do that. There's no way would I even want to do that based on what they just did, based on what I know they're going to do, based on what I'm going to face. And yet he does the unimaginable. He's going to talk to them about the cross. He's going to talk to them about their lack of support, especially when he needed it the most. They ask all kinds of questions. It's hard to believe I got to believe he was a little bit amazed by the fact that he had been with them so long and they still didn't understand. Ever been there? If people in your life that you're investing in, you're sharing Jesus, you want them to know what you have found in Christ, and so you tell them a little bit about your story and, and maybe they push you off and then after a while you have a little bit of an opportunity and then they still push you off and you wonder, will I ever have that opportunity for them to fully understand what I'm trying to help them get because it will change their life. I know it will change their life. I see what it did for mine. Or you have that rebellious child. Maybe you have a really compliant child who's just perfect. I know we all have one of those. But then there's that rebellious child and you keep praying over and over again. You pour your life and energy and time into their lives and and, and you find yourself wondering, are they ever going to get it? Maybe you're a teacher in some form or the other and you have students and every once in a while when you're trying to give them truth that will change their life or things that will change their purpose and focus, 
They look like deer in headlights and you wonder, are they getting it at all? He knows that. He knows what that's like. He's with them. He talks to them about his death, talks to them about their persecution because of their relationship with him. By the time he gets to chapter 16, he talks to them about death, separation, persecution, and loneliness. That's a lot of pressure. But he said, I need you to know that I'm not going to leave you alone. As a matter of fact, it's really important that I leave because I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, which is a paraclete, the one who will walk alongside you. He loves us enough to not say, boy, I just, do you have any idea what I'm going to face tomorrow? Come on. He said, I want you to know I love you enough that I will not leave you alone. I will send you my spirit. And then he describes it in 15 and 16 in one of the most wonderful ways that scripture could ever describe of what it's going to be like to have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the living God, walk us through every single circumstance of life. I told you these things. I've told you all of that. I am telling you all of this based on what we're facing right now so that in Him, He says, in me, you'll have peace. In the world, by the way, you're going to have trouble. AD 32, 2020. In this world, you're going to have trouble. I just need you to know that you can take heart because I have overcome that. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. Be of good courage. I've overcome that. In the world, you're going to have problems. In me, you'll have peace. Let me give you some reasons that Jesus felt pressure. One, he was misunderstood. His motives, his mission, probably one of the most difficult things in life is when people don't quite get what you're trying to share. Every time he turned around, someone misunderstood him. I don't know if any of you know what it's like to do 10 things right and one thing that someone didn't agree with and that's all they concentrate on and then they began to question your integrity, your motives. He wasn't accepted, wasn't accepted for who he was. Even the religious leaders, he, he came from heaven, was the son of God, but he wasn't religious enough. Any of you know what it's like to not fit in? To not be accepted just for who you are. You may be different. You may look at life different. You may look different. But you know he knows what it's like to not fit in. Many of us remember what it was like to go to school for the first time. And then all of a sudden you get into junior high and you just want to fit in. You just want to be accepted. You remember what it was like in grade school when they picked the teams to play ball and you weren't chosen and you think, okay, if I get through that, I'll, I'll get to be in junior high and, and then I'll fit in. Then all of a sudden you're in senior high and now you're really trying to fit in. And you figure you got it mastered then you go to college, you start all over again. I decided to go for an earned doctorate at 50 years old. Went to Regent University in Virginia Beach, got there for the first time, 39 students out there and here I am at 50 years old wondering which group am I going to fit in. Is anybody going to think? And then the list goes on and on. He was tempted. In this case, tempted to take a shortcut. Any of you know temptation? You know what it's like to be tempted? Ever feel like you don't even want to talk about it because you don't think anybody else understands? He does. He started out as ministry and tempted. Matthew paints the picture, Luke does as well. At the very beginning of his ministry, the Spirit of God led him into the wilderness to be tested or tempted, depending on the translation that you read. And he ends his ministry by being tempted. Tempted to what? Take a shortcut. 
Some of us may have that old picture in our house of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and the night he was going to go through all of this praying by a rock. And then he has that classic statement in Scripture. Is there another way? Is there any other way that this can happen? Is there any other way that redemption can happen besides me going through what I'm going to go through? It's a really short statement, but powerful essence in that statement. We all know what it's like to be tempted. We all know what it's like, even though we don't talk about it much, but we all face it. The disciples were slow learners, been with them for three years. They still didn't quite get it. Number five, heavy responsibility. I don't know what your job is like. I don't know what your career is like. I don't know what you face, whether you're the boss or not. But some of you here in the room, I'm sure, face an enormous amount of pressure just trying to keep everybody on the same page this year or, or whatever that may be. He gets that. I mean, this is Jesus facing everything that he's about to go through and knowing what's going to happen with all the responsibility that goes with that. He gets that. Not much time to accomplish everything. We all feel that time squeeze and know what that's like. Still more that could be done, number seven, more healing, more preaching. A lot of people still not following him. Three and a half years of ministry, over three years of ministry, and you've got it narrowed down to a a crowd that comes, 120 that really maybe get it, 12 that you hope would get it, and one who ends up running the other way, and the rest abandon you. I got to believe there would be a part of him if he was honest to say, can I just start all over again? I need you to have that picture in your mind till you get to John 17. Because when you think about all of this, and number eight, the path that was before him, the betrayal, the arrest, the beatings, the abandonment, the cross. Most of the time, somewhere on Good Friday or Easter celebration of the week before, we talk about all of the essence of what that was like. And we're usually trying to be sensitive to everybody because we're all different levels of life. But when you read the Gospels, they're pretty blatant about what Jesus went through. The beating and the scourging and the spitting and the mocking and everything else. So here he is with more than anyone in life could have ever imagined. So what does he do? What can we learn from him? Five things that he does on handling pressure. Number one, he knew who to go to. He knew who to go to lifting up his eyes to heaven. That is a line that you need to underline. Nobody knows what I'm going through. I don't know what to do with all of this. I don't know what to do with my emotions or my feelings. I don't know what to do with where I'm at right now. I don't know what to do with what I have to do tomorrow and what the rest of the year is going to hold and what it's going to look like. Lift up his eyes to heaven. He knew where to go to for all of this. And he didn't try to keep it to himself. He knew what he came for, number two. Father, the hours now come. Glorify your son that I may glorify you. He knew exactly the essence of his purpose here in this life. He knew why he was here. He knew what he was here to do. He didn't try to add all the things that really don't matter. Didn't try to add all the things everybody else said he ought to do. He knew exactly what he was called to do. He gave up his rights. He didn't hold on to them so tightly. I love one of the translations of Philippians chapter 2. This is God himself who didn't hold on to it so tightly that he couldn't let go. Many times at a funeral when I talk about the person that we're memorializing or celebrating their life. I'll talk about the difference between the people who hold on to life and everything they get with everything they have and the others who live life with open hands. 
who just want to take what they've learned and what they've found or what they've gotten and give it away and share it with those around them. Not always things. Not always resources. But love and grace and tenderness and a smile. And the list is endless. He didn't have to hold on to that so tight that he couldn't let go. It's not about what happens to us or what happens to me or what happens to... I just got to learn at some point to let that go. He had something to give, number four, and he did a good job, number five. In the middle of more pressure than anybody could have ever had in life, he knew exactly what to do in all of that. He knew who to go to. He knew what he came for. He gave up his rights. Something to give, not hold on. And he did the best he knew how in all of that. So how does that apply to us? What do I do with all of that? How do I pull all of that into my life so that I can handle like he did? I'll tell you next week. You've got to come back. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your word. I'm so delighted to know that we don't just have to read it to read it, but we can feel it. We can get inside it. We can get the essence of what it is that you want to teach us in it all. There's so much in, in this particular, one of my favorite sections, so much that I, I'm grateful that I have the opportunity to share more next Sunday because there are so many things you want to teach us in this. Father, you know where we're all at. There's somebody in here this morning who, it's almost to the point of breaking. And so I, I trust that you will speak to them loud and clear and they'll hear you. And others that just are such examples of smile on their face and joy in their heart, and spring in their step and a song in their lips. We're everywhere. We're all over the place just in this campus here this morning in this one service. Delighted that you meet us where we are teach us what we personally need to know what we all need to know corporately but what we individually need to know I love how you do that would you do that for us in these couple of weeks together in the name of Jesus I pray Amen. my admin and you, you need to sit because I want to give you a, a couple of announcements many times my admins through the years ask me how long is the sermon going to take I'll let you know after the end of the first service and usually it's the essence of what it is that I want to share. And I've been blessed this week to be able to have two so that, or this month, so that I can share it with you next Sunday. But next Sunday, we're going to flip things around a little bit. I'm going to give you the application, then we're going to sing. We're just going to sing. I knew you'd like that. We're just going to sing and celebrate. So if you're inviting anybody, I'd love to have them back. Labor Day weekend, I don't know if a lot of people are away or not, but if you're going to invite somebody back, just say, hey, I just want you to know it's going to be a little bit different. And uh, we're going to start with singing. We're going to talk about this ap application. And then we're just going to sing and we're just going to give it to him. There's a lot going on this week. If you notice out in the lobby, all of our dark ministries and life groups are starting. If you're not in a life group, you have to be because it's the best way to get connected with a family size like ours. There are all kinds of opportunities out there. Check them out. Maybe talk to somebody. Talk to Keith or somebody else that's in that group that maybe has already signed up and you know them could be a way of figuring things out. It's Thursday night, TNL, which is Thursday Night Live Junior High starts, 6.30 on Thursday night. On Sunday night, C, which is our senior high ministry, starts at 
Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11 o'clock only is our children's ministry starting. Everybody was excited about it last Sunday morning when I announced it. People clapped in all the services together, and that's going to start. The key to it is, though, you have to register. Now, we talked about that at the beginning, so you knew how many came, and then after a while we thought, well, there's plenty of room. We don't need to register. For this, you really need to with your children so we know exactly how many to expect in what room. We have to have the right amount, the right amount of staff, the right amount of space, and all that goes with that. So if you can, the earlier you can do that this week for us, that would be awesome so that we can prepare and prepare for it very, very well. Everything's on our website at uh, cac.org, and that will help you so that you can get more than just what I said this morning. If you have those cups before you and with you, if you would take those on your way out, you'll see a place to discard those that would help us in our cleaning for the next service. If I can pray for you, I'd love to do that. Please come back next week. Got some great stuff to share. God bless you.